IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest IB Talk, the insurance industry's global podcast and our first edition of 2022. Uh, it's been a while since I've had the pleasure of talking to you all. IB Talk has been handled brilliantly by Mia Wallace and Beth and Moorcraft over the last couple of months as we've featured a number of sector focuses in our UK and US regions. Uh, but now I'm back. And if I want to compete with their amazing efforts, I'm going to need a fantastic guest to kick off the new year in style. Uh, so luckily, I have one. Uh, it's often said that women don't get the same opportunities as men in the insurance industry, and that makes it all the more impressive when a woman truly does break through at the top. Not only has my guest done that, but she has chalked up an amazing career at a host of top insurers, and now is the leading light as Group Chief Underwriting Officer at Zurich. And she's here to chat about all things underwriting today. Uh, that woman is Hayley Robinson. Hayley, welcome to IB Talk. Thank you very much, and I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Uh, so, Hayley, your CV reads a little bit like a, a who's who of the insurance industry. Time spent at RSA, Aviva, and now Zurich. Um, but tell us how you got into the industry. How did you get your start? Because I, I believe it that was originally in underwriting as well. Yes, and and I um, I started in insurance like many people by accident. Um, I went to university and I studied French and Spanish. And when I graduated, I realized I didn't want to teach and I didn't want to go into interpreting and translating. So I decided I needed to find a, a job in the city uh, to earn some money till I decided what I wanted to do. Um, and I applied for banking and insurance and I was fortunate to get a graduate traineeship at uh, what was Sun Alliance then. I'm wondering how many people did university courses and then decided that wasn't what they wanted to do with their career. Um, so, so what made you then go down the, the banking and insurance route? What made you choose that as your as your city start? I think I, I, I decided that I didn't really know where I wanted to go. So I thought if I went to the city and I'd been on a... Uh, a, a taster day in the city of London and found Lloyd's fascinating and went round a few of the, the merchant banks as they were then. Uh, and I thought, actually, if I go into the city, I'll learn some money and then I'll decide what I want to do. So uh, that was my thought process. A very smart process indeed. And, and what challenges would you say that you, you faced as you, as you tried to, to get started in your career? I think for me, when I came into insurance, I was... I, I was shy and I lacked confidence. So I think most of the challenges in my early career were based on my own lack of confidence. Um, and I would wait to be asked in a room rather than, you know, speaking up. Uh, and sometimes, you know, if you wait to be asked, sometimes people don't ask you. Um, uh, and, and I think in those days as well, there were few female role models at the top of insurance companies. So I couldn't really in the early days, see my path up. I just thought the best way for me to get on is to um, build my knowledge and skills and just broaden my experience and see what happened. Well, that sort of that vision that you described, if you want, um, of, of kind of waiting to be asked a question is, is, is a trap that perhaps a lot of people fall into and, and maybe women in particular. How have you been able to overcome that? I probably didn't for a very long time. Um, and then 
some some jobs you're just lucky, aren't you, that you find the right boss who sees something in you that you might not see in yourself, uh, and someone that pushes you forward, and it, and and recognizes that you're hesitating, and therefore in a meeting will say, "Haley, have you got anything to say?" Um, and I'm very conscious myself of that now. I try and look for the quiet people in the room and and try and draw them in um, to make sure that you know everyone gets that opportunity. Yeah, great that you're you're applying that uh, strategy yourself. And of course, you you move quite quickly in your career. And and, and when I say move, that I mean that in a in a literal sense as well, because you re- relocated to to North Carolina uh, and later to to Miami, Florida. Um, tell us how those opportunities came about, and and what was the experience like of of working overseas? Yeah, and and if you look at my CV, I, I moved quite a few times in my early career. Every couple of years, I moved roles, and that was really me trying to find what I enjoyed. Um, I always say to people, I've got a low boredom threshold, and and so I just wanted to make sure I was, um, you know, keeping myself busy and uh, and um, learning. Um, and the North Carolina opportunity came by really by accident i had um i had a, a brilliant role in sun alliance as the regional manager for the southeast of england and um literally 9 months into that job sun alliance merged with royal um and i applied for my job uh and i didn't get it um there was someone more experienced than me who who got that role so i was looking around for a for an opportunity, and I, um, I was talking to one of my previous bosses, and I said, "Have you got any jobs going?" Um, and he said, "Well, I'm off to Latin America to work in the Latin America and Caribbean division." And I immediately said, "Well, I've got a Spanish degree, if that helps." Um, and so I went through the interview process, um, and the job was originally based in the UK, and then it moved to North Carolina. So whilst I lived in the states, I was actually commuting almost um, into Latin America uh, and traveling around dealing with um, the Latin American regional business. And, and then how later, di- Sorry, I was going to say, how, how different was that? It, it was very different. Not moved overseas before in my professional career. Um, so all the things you take for granted when you live in your home country suddenly uh, are very different when you move overseas. You know, the healthcare system is different. The You know, they drive on the opposite side of the road and everything is different. So you're learning a new job and then you're learning a new country. Um, and I was equally, you know, traveling through Latin America and learning those um, different geographies. So um, fascinating experience. Uh, I would highly recommend to anyone if you get the opportunity to move in your career, because you just, you know, grow and develop, and it gives you different perspectives um, that you don't always get in your in your home base. And and is the insurance market very different out there to, to what you'd experienced at home as well? There's there's a, the fundamentals are the same, but I think the way everybody does business is different in in each culture um and you know i used to spend my life saying to people back in in the uk latin america isn't one country you know we had seven different operations and mexico is very different to argentina which is different to chile so um i think 
people have to remember that, that the, the culture of a country and how it does business is the thing that's different, even if you're still looking at property insurance or motor insurance, for example. Yeah, we should know there are enough divisions just between the, the north and the south of England to, to understand <laughs> the differences that exist in Latin America. But tell us about your, your Miami experience as well. What was that like? Yeah, so so Miami was, uh, you know, after, after North Carolina, I, I went back to the UK um, and I did... Um, I did seven years back in the UK, um, and in that period of time, they'd moved the Miami, the um, Latin American office from North Carolina to Miami, um, and I got an opportunity to to go back, um, and um, so it was great because the Latin American piece was familiar. The United States was familiar. Miami was a, a different experience. Uh, and my children were then at the age of seven. So um, we had a, a family in tow. So it was a, a, a super opportunity uh, and great professionally speaking as well. Yeah, I can imagine. And I'm going to skip forward quite quite a way now, Haley, because you, you go on to spend a, a, around 20 years with RSA, then make a, a switch to, to Aviva then return to RSA just under two years later. Just talk us through that part of your career and, and, and your decision-making at the time. Yeah, so I, yes, you're right. I was about 20 years into RSA and, and I was based in Miami at the time and um, and I got a, a phone call from a headhunter and I wasn't particularly, I wasn't particularly looking to, to move uh, organisations, but um, I, I took the phone call and thought, actually, this is a great opportunity. It was an opportunity to move back to the UK and to move out of commercial insurance into personal lines insurance. And I'd never really done personal lines ex- uh, underwriting, except when I really started my career in the first sort of year of my career. Um, and I thought it would be a nice way of returning to the UK and going somewhere different and learning something different. So that was my my decision-making process at the time. So I, I moved to Aviva, um, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, very different experience in personal lines versus commercial lines. Um, and I would have stayed at Aviva. I was thoroughly enjoying it. But um, RSA phoned me up and said my dream job had just come up, which was the chief underwriting officer for emerging markets, which was working with Latin America again, but working with Asia and Central and Eastern Europe. Um, and a bit like I've alluded to, in some ways I've I've got itchy feet in terms of, um, of overseas um, experiences. So um, I went back to RSA to take up that opportunity. Well, I, I think that sort of uh, those itchy feet can can apply to you now as well, because of course you've you've been with Zurich, I know, for just over three years, and and, and moved into the the group CEO role uh, about six months ago, and that's obviously involved you you relocating um, to Zurich as well. So, how did it feel to get that opportunity? I mean, it was it was an opportunity I wasn't expecting. Um, there was a, a new uh, CEO in role, and then. Her boss moved on and, and she was promoted. So it came up sooner than I was anticipating. So um, it's a, a fantastic opportunity. I feel deeply honoured to have been uh, asked to be the group CEO. 
Um, and it's, if you like, when you join insurance, you don't always know where you're going to end up. I never saw myself as a group CUO. Um, I'd worked in claims, I'd done projects. Um, so to have the opportunity um, feels like the pinnacle, actually, of my career. Uh, I'm deeply thrilled. And of course, as you alluded to earlier when you started your career, you said there weren't many um, women in sort of high profile roles. And today, obviously, that, that's changed a little bit, but perhaps not as, as much as we would like. And I'm sure that there is many people who would look at you as an inspiration, particularly being a, a woman in such a prominent role. So tell me, when you look back on your career, have you ever encountered any issues that have, you, you feel are sort of related to your gender? And, and, and what advice would you give to women who are looking to, to follow in your footsteps and, and break through that glass ceiling? John, I've not knowingly come across any discrimination in my career. I might have done, you know, not known about it, but I haven't experienced it directly to my face. Um, one of the reasons I joined insurance was because when I went through the banking interview processes, they were quite um, hostile in their questioning of, of me as a woman. So that was one of the things that drew me into insurance was it felt different. It felt like the sort of place I might fit in. Um, but that doesn't mean to say just because I didn't experience any discrimination that others haven't and, and don't suffer that. Um, so for me, I think it's really important that, you know, everyone can come to work to be themselves and that they don't have to change who they are to fit in. I think if I look back at the early part of my career, I probably was changing my personality and who I was to make sure I fitted in. And I think whilst there's been some progress, as you say, I think there is still a way to go. My advice to people would be genuinely to be yourself. I think to believe in yourself, um, you alluded it to it yourself, is quite often women lack a degree of confidence and whether you call it imposter syndrome or not, um, I always encourage people to believe in themselves and the people I mentor, that's probably the thing I see most of all, a lack of self-belief. Um, and then I would say to people, build a network because your network are the people you can rely on through the ups and downs of a career. They're the people you can call on when you want some advice. They're the people that you'll bump into in the street and have a conversation about a career move. And that's where opportunities come from. Um, and I think really, if I look at it, you know, there are only 20% of CEOs who are women. So there's a great opportunity for us to change that and for more women to decide they want to be a CUO and go for it. Yeah, I like that attitude as well to, to sort of see that as, as an opportunity. Um, so, I mean, let's let's talk a little bit more about the role then of a CUO, because I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who, who would be very interested in that and perhaps don't fully understand what it entails. So just give us a, a little bit of insight into what a typical day looks like and, and what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, I think the beauty of my role is that every day is different. Um, and that's what I like about being a CEO. There is tremendous variety. Um, and obviously, 
in any organization and as a CEO, there's a rhythm to how you operate. So, you know, one week it'll be results meetings, uh, portfolio trends, um, one-to-ones with my team or other people. Um, But if I look at the last seven days, I thought if I could bring this to life, just describing some of the things that I've done in the last seven days. Um, So I've had regular one-to-ones with with team members. We have had some portfolio results meetings at a global level and then with our our regions. Um, And then the other thing I particularly enjoy is when you get a, a, a referral for a large new piece of business. Um, there aren't so many because obviously we, we keep a lot of the authority in country, but when there's a big deal or a different deal, it quite often comes across my desk. So in the last week, we've looked at a new credit related deal. We've also looked at an accident and health opportunity. So those are also quite different and, and make the day enjoyable. And then I've had some strategic relationship meetings with brokers Um And then I now sit on the Net Zero Insurance Alliance Steering Group. So we've had a meeting there. Uh, And then other things that I've I've also been involved in uh, is uh, talent development meetings. We're heavily focused on making sure that we have the right talent in the organisation. So those are just some of the, the, the things that my last seven days have involved. Yeah, it sounds like you're wearing a, a lot of hats, to be honest. Um, with that in mind, I mean, is, is there any particular facet of the role that you particularly enjoy? I think there are two areas I particularly enjoy, and that's that's the people, the people development piece, uh, and making sure we've got the right talent in the right locations with the right skill set. Um, and for me is looking at the portfolios um, and looking at how they're performing and where where we're doing well, how can we keep doing well, where we've got challenges, how do we um, solve those challenges? So it's those two aspects that make it really worthwhile. And of course, when you're tasked with driving the, the underwriting strategy for you know a global giant, let's be honest, that's what Zurich is, I mean, it, it seems like a, a massive remit. So how do you go about sort of setting and establishing your objectives? Yeah, you're right. It is it is a large remit, but we have you know a really excellent and experienced team at the centre. Um, and I'm fortunate being new into role. There are people around me who've been in their roles for longer, and that that really does help. Um, but if I say really, our goal as the global underwriting team, I think is is quite simple, um, and it's to steer the underwriting community. Um, and to continuously improve our underwriting result and grow the business profitably and sustainably over the long term. Um, And we do that by focusing on our underwriting capabilities and talent. Um, And and that's to make sure that, you know, Zurich is known as a reliable, knowledgeable and capable insurer and that our underwriters can have great conversations and do deals with um, with our customers and brokers. So really my role um, is to set the, um, if you like, the, the risk appetite and the strategy and then support the, the countries to deliver that on the front line. 
And when we're looking at the, the underwriting community at large, I mean, what do you see as the key issues or challenges that exist in the market right now, especially because, you know, you are you have got that global perspective? Uh, I think that's what makes underwriting exciting because there are always issues, challenges and opportunities. And, and as underwriters, our job is to make sure we can find solutions to those. Um, uh, but if you look at the bigger items we're facing now, um, talent retention and attraction is a big one. You, um, you've only got to look at the major markets and see there is a uh, a dearth of really deep underwriting technical knowledge. Um, I also would say that, you know, our underwriting processes as large insurers probably need some investment in, in technology to support our, our underwriters because the speed of change in the world is is only getting faster. Uh, and the amount of uh, data that we have and the amount of information our customers provide us is is so huge that um, that we do need to make sure that we have the tools so that the underwriters can find the right data at the right time to make their decisions. Um, and then I think what's exciting is you know, the move to to net zero by 2050 uh, and the changing nature of the world and and that will give us great opportunities and and some challenges you know, the investment i think in new technologies that we will see over the next 20 to 30 years um makes it a great exciting place to be i'm just zooming in on that that talent retention aspect because i mean that's something that i hear not just among the underwriting community but i think you know the, the insurance sector at large um Looking at that aspect, because I mean, you you said yourself at the top that I mean, you, you sort of fell into insurance if you want. You were, you know, you you were just sort of looking for for a job in the city, and you know, banking insurance was came to mind. Um, so, how do we make insurance more attractive to people, and how do we bring in people with that expertise to fill those underwriting roles? Yeah, I, d- I do think it's a real challenge, actually, because I think when people find insurance, they often stay because of the variety um, of roles uh, and opportunities. Um, but I do think I do think we, as an industry, need to do a better job at you know, going into schools and letting them know what insurance is about. Um, I think equally. You know, mathematicians have quite often gone into actuarial science, um, you know, university. But now we're we're also competing with the, you know, the Googles and the tech giants who also want um, highly numerate um, um, college graduates. So I think it is a something that we have to work together as an industry using our industry bodies uh, and make sure we get a better message out there. Yeah, I think emphasising that that variety is, as you say, is, is probably the key. Um, but let's let's switch away from from the world of work now. And of course, you are um, the the proud mother of triplets, who I believe are are now around twenty one years old. Um, tell us, firstly, how do you juggle work and, and personal life, especially being in in the the role that you are now, which is so high profile. Well, it's much easier now because um, they're all at university. So, so I think what, at the moment we're, we're the bank of mum and dad and we're the person that sort of is there when they want to talk to someone at 1am. So in many ways, that's that's 
a lot easier than when they were very small. So um, I think juggling personal life and work is 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 easier now my children are older um but when they were much younger my husband was a was a great support so he would do all of the things like the school run and things like that tell us what it was like when you first found out you were having triplets i mean that comes as a shock to everybody doesn't it <laughs> yeah it was it was a, it was a big shock luckily i was lying down actually at the time so when the doctor told me um it was the 31st of december 1999 so my children were the my millennium present if you like um yeah it was a shock and it was scary actually um you know needing to do as i was told and and take lots of medical precautions through through my pregnancy but um my employer was brilliant and um you know they were all born healthy and only two weeks two weeks early so I did look like the side of a house through most of my pregnancy but um, the result was was worth it and and, and I'm sure there's you know a, a lot of women I mean we hear very often you know in, in the conversations around diversity and inclusion and so on that about the efforts that employers are now making to sort of you know make it easier for women to to return to work after maternity leave and so on i imagine though for you at that point in your career you know perhaps there weren't some of the the, the sort of the, the incentives and so on that are in place now and on, and on top of that um you're dealing with triplets so how difficult was it for you at that sort of stage to, to kind of juggle being a new mum a new mum of three um with with a, a working career as well yeah it was it, it it was difficult and it was complicated by the fact I was on a three-year expat contract in the state so I couldn't take a year's maternity leave on a three-year contract so you know I said to my boss I'll tell you what I'll just take my 14-week statutory um, which I'd taken with me as a as a British citizen, um, and my husband wasn't allowed to work at the time because uh, he didn't have a, a US visa, so he stayed at home. And then we did have to um, have a nanny to give him some support. So I was very fortunate that my domestic circumstances helped me to go back to work. But I think the most exhausting thing for any mother that people will understand is the lack of sleep for the first two years and holding down a job are not easy uh, and fathers suffer that as well but that would be my abiding memory of two years of exhaustion and then it starts to get easier and when you look back now 21 years into it um i'm sure there have been some some memorable moments some challenging moments uh, along the way um any that you'd highlight Gosh, um, with my children, I would say, um, you know, that I've, I think we're very fortunate is, you know, when we went back to the States, they were seven years old because they were born in the States. They were they're, uh, they're American citizens. So um, it was quite funny going to live in Miami with three American citizens who had very uh, British accents. Um, so that was one of my my more memorable moments of, and my children not knowing which part of their body to put their hand on their heart to, when they sang the Star Spangled Banner. So there were some quite funny moments along the way. Well, finally, um, Hayley, um, if anybody wants to, to reach out to you on the back of this talk, how can they get in touch? Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, 
And so if anyone wants to, to get in touch and have a conversation, then just reach out to me on LinkedIn. Super stuff. Hayley, you, you've been a, a fantastic guest. Thank you very, very much for your time. Um, to everybody listening, this is our first edition of 2022, but it's certainly not the last. We will be back with you very, very soon. Uh, so talk to you next time here on IB Talk. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.